Hi there. Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur at heart, running my own yoga business and building my personal brand. My goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher or fitness professional, with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching, help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students and growing your business along the way. I've been teaching for over 16 years and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics. Some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation. And other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that definitely come up when we take on the journey of a yoga teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, please visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. My name is Karen Fabian, and I am the founder of Bare Bones Yoga, and I am your host for my podcast called Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Here we are on episode 58, and I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you are here. So I want to start out um, with just a quick note that time is running out to join my Costa Rica retreat and vacation and travel adventure all wrapped up into one. This um, experience is in June. However, the last day to sign up is March 20th. The retreat itself is June 20th, for um, June 20th to the 26th. And it's at the beautiful Bodhi Tree Yoga Resort in Costa Rica. And I want you to consider this uh, to be a different thing than you've experienced before if your experience for yoga learning has really involved traveling someplace and practicing you know, pretty significantly, like probably twice a day, um, sitting a lot and being in lecture a lot all day and not having a lot of time to enjoy your surroundings. Well, this is gonna be completely different. While I will be teaching uh, a morning session and afternoon session, it will be more on the chill side. It's not gonna be super exhausting or, you know, very high intensity. I will be adding in meditation for both sessions, so you'll get that as well. And then in the afternoons for the learning component, I'll be hosting workshops in the afternoon only. So that means that you'll basically have all day to do what you want, to rest, to swim in the ocean, in the pool at the resort, to do your own practice, to do reading. I mean, I can remember all the times I've gone to trainings and I've brought books and magazines and I've literally never had a moment to open them up. So I really wanted this to be a well-rounded experience and I wanted to pick a place that was a little bit more on the high-end side. So the Bodhi Tree Yoga Resort is just a beautiful five-star resort and I'm also working with a travel partner. So she's got the travel experience and I have the yoga teaching experience. So together, I really am thrilled to be able to offer for a complete experience for you. So I'm gonna include the link to the retreat in the show notes, although you can go to my website, it's right on the homepage, barebonesyoga.com. And you've only got until March 20th. All you need to do to hold your spot is make a deposit of $500 and then you'll have time to pay it off over time between now and the uh, retreat date itself. So today I wanted to talk to you about sequencing and I wanted to kind of frame it as building a yoga sequence with anatomy in mind. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably had some experiences in your own body 
of going into a class and taking the class and not really understanding the logic behind the transitions that the teacher was offering, or maybe it felt kind of funny in your body. And I can certainly say, and I'm sure you can say as well, that as a teacher, it's completely impossible to please everybody. So we're not, um, and I don't think we should be in the business of trying to please all our students. Our students uh, are going to get a sense of our style, our approach, and we're going to, you know, as people say, attract our tribe, right? We're going to attract people to our classes on a regular basis who like the way we teach, who like how we offer the practice. It's not our job to go around and try to keep everything super changeable and interesting in order to try to keep people interested in the practice. The beauty of yoga is that um, in its simplicity and in a way in its repetitiveness, i.e. presenting similar postures from sequence to sequence to sequence, we allow students to notice how things can be really different, right? You've definitely heard this before, how your down dog today is going to be different from your down dog tomorrow. And that's because you're gonna be different even in small, subtle ways. Now I can certainly say from an anatomical standpoint, there are some concerns that I have now about literally doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, that's a little bit of a different topic. I think for now, what I'm suggesting and what I'd like you to take away from this part of the conversation is that it's not our job as yoga teachers to try to change up our sequences all the time to keep things interesting. If you are um, doing that right now, I know from talking to uh, some teachers and I actually just got an email from a teacher uh, over in England that she's experiencing complete exhaustion having taken on this approach. And I completely empathize with her. And I know that this is the experience of other teachers too. And I think it's in large part because we have as a, I don't want to necessarily say as a community, but it's, it's understandable and common, and I experience this as well uh, occasionally, this need to be liked, this need to have our sequences be, you know, liked by our students and to have our classes be, you know, well attended and, and students like us and all of that. And so that's oftentimes what's driving our need to change up our sequences all the time. We're trying to please our students. And this becomes a completely energy depleting scenario. Now, I am not saying it is easy <laughs> to let go of that. All I'm saying is let's kind of call it out for what it is. Let's get to the root of what it's about and let's see if we can loosen our grip on that a little bit. Now, if this resonates with you, I will say that understanding where your people-pleasing kind of mindset comes from can actually require some deep inner work. And I know for myself, um, I don't necessarily have a strong sense of this, but I have a couple of things that I have a strong sense of that I notice in my own behavior when I teach. And these are things um, that I consider barriers. And I'm really trying hard to call myself out on these things and to seek some help from mentors um, in specific areas, not even in the yoga industry, uh, to help me kind of uncover what the root cause of these things are. In the past, I've worked with a neuroscience coach. I can't even tell you how valuable it was to work with uh, a neuroscience coach to really understand some of the thought processes and deep, deeply rooted beliefs that I had that were informing how I was coming across and what some of my really unconscious habits were. So that when I say mentor, I'm not talking about another yoga teacher. I'm not talking about a senior yoga teacher. I'm not even really talking about a therapist. I'm talking about people that have um, a specific approach to understanding how the mind works, to breaking certain habits that are unhealthy, and to really getting to the root cause, not really from a therapy standpoint, but really uncovering behaviors that we have and bringing them out into the open and trying to understand why we're wired the way we're wired to act in that particular way, what's behind that. So having said all that, um, I think that there obviously is a lot that goes behind creating sequences. And you know, in addition to that kind of people-pleasing theme, if you're finding that you're spending a lot of time creating sequences throughout the week, um, you know, I want you to just kind of think about if that um, people-pleasing 
uh, approach is what's driving all of that work and whether that work is really necessary. Like, wouldn't you rather be free to walk into the classroom every time you teach without feeling like you needed to do an hour's prep before so that you could literally walk into the room and you could be you know, kind of available energetically and really present for your students. This is really what I want for all of the teachers that I meet, that I train, that I work with in my mentorship program, that are listening to this podcast. I want them to have that experience of having that strong, silent confidence that they can walk into a room. They didn't need to do all this preparation before. They just have this solid foundation of knowledge from which they can draw and they can do it in a spontaneous way so that they can really be watching their students, not practicing with their students, really be watching their students and adjusting the cues they're giving to adapt to what they're seeing people need by really being present and watching them. So that's ultimately where I want all this to go for you. So if that resonates with you, if you feel like when you heard that description, you're like, yeah, that's definitely what I want. I mean, I've heard from yoga teachers quite a bit, this idea of, I want the cues to just flow from me. That's like a really common way that I've heard people describe what they desire in their teaching. And so I think that is another way to encapsulate it. So um, think about when you're creating your sequences, you know, think about things like, what is your intention? What is your anatomical focus? What's the point of the sequence? Because just writing down a bunch of postures in and of themselves really doesn't kind of tell a story. And when you think about what your sequence is trying to do, it really is in a way trying to tell a story to the student. Another way to think about it is it's like taking them on a journey, right? Sometimes I like to start and end with the same posture. So you could maybe say starting them on their back. And so there they have this, this literal full journey Point A and point Z are exactly the same, and yet they've been taken on a journey throughout the middle of that. And they get to the end point and they get to see if they felt any shifts given that uh, their beginning point was exactly the same. So one way to think about your sequencing is you're telling a story, you're taking people on a journey, you have a specific goal in mind, right? So just like you set goals for yourself, you have a specific goal in mind that you want to convey to your students. And so you want the sequence to lead them to that goal. So those are just different ways that you can kind of frame things. So I want to kind of hit on a couple of points here regarding sequencing. And, you know, that first one is, is this idea of thinking of your sequences as a way to tell a story. Now, the next point about sequencing in general is this idea of to teach the same sequence or not. Now, I can tell you my initial training, um, I was originally trained and certified. I was certified for a long time as a Baptiste yoga teacher. And while my sequencing is somewhat similar, it really does have a lot more variety than the sequence that I was originally taught. Now, having said that, I think that original sequence that I was taught and kind of the standard journey into power sequence that Baron Baptiste has is so great. I think it is such a wonderful, solid, accessible, functional movement-based sequence. And one of the things that's so great about it is it has kind of stood the test of time, at least my time as a yoga teacher uh, for 15, 16 years at this point. And so I can still go into a class today and teach that sequence from A to Z, just as I did when I started teaching in 2002. And, you know, I can definitely attest to, you know, kind of the benefit of that sequence from a lot of perspectives. One of the things that I enjoy, though, is that over the years, as my learning has um, shifted to some more focus on anatomy, and as my, you know, kind of experience has grown, I've really enjoyed straying from one sequence and adding different things. Now, initially, I just did that just to be different. 
But as my anatomy knowledge grew and as I really started to focus more on anatomy, what I found was that it was really helpful to have a specific focus in mind and to share that with students so that they were kind of, like I was saying earlier, um, going on the journey with me. And they had a little bit of a window into why I was having them do what I was having them do. Now, one of the things and, and the point here of this particular this particular theme to teach the same sequence or not all the time, one of the things that over time I began to wonder about is, is it really beneficial on a physical level for people to do the same thing over and over and over again? So you can think about that in the context of um, a practice itself. So within one yoga session, you can think about the repetitive nature of certain things. And then you can think about the repetitive nature of yoga when you look at it, let's say over the course of a week, over the course of a month, over the course of a year. So one way to think about it is from an anatomical standpoint and a biomechanical standpoint, and just even without those words, which can sometimes sound complicated, just think of it from a movement perspective. If you are moving in the same way all the time, so let's take running. If you're constantly running, or if running is your main way of exercise, you're generally always moving in one plane when it comes to your hips. You're moving in that plane of flexion and extension. And you're definitely flexing a little bit more than you're extending because you're probably lifting your thigh up more than you're kicking your thigh bone back. So if you're constantly running and that's your main source of exercise, you're not really moving very much in that side to side plane and you're not really doing very much in the rotational plane. So if you just think about moving in the same direction a lot, um, what that generally sets the body up for are certain muscles are going to generally be stronger and certain muscles are not going to get as much work. And so that can create, again, on a very basic level, a muscle imbalance. And it can also create, because of that imbalance, some compensations in the body to make up for muscles that aren't as strong and muscles that aren't as flexible. You can also just apply that template just to some basic things that we hear about all the time. Don't sit too much. Don't stand too much. You know, get your feet up, put your feet down, right? There's just all these different kind of short quips that people throw out as sitting is the new this and standing is the new that and, and all those little metaphors that are meant in a way to kind of scare us into action when really what we need to understand is what the body craves and what really helps create overall balance in the body is working through all the planes of movement of the body as much as possible. And so when you look at yoga, a typical yoga practice, uh, one of the great things about it is if you do a typical yoga sequence, a fairly standard sequence, you're going to be moving in all those different planes even in just one short one hour practice. So that's one of the advantages. One of the challenges though, from an anatomical standpoint is you're going to do, be doing a lot with your palms facing down. And with your palms facing down, you're gonna be asked to then resist the, um, the kind of impact of gravity on your body as your hands are down and you're facing the floor and your inclination is to hunch and to sink. You're gonna be asked to do a lot of pushing away, whether it's in down dog or plank. Then you're gonna be asked to push away in a dynamic movement, like moving from high to low push up. You're gonna be asked to do those things. And additionally, it's going to be potentially challenging for you because you've been hunching a lot, because your shoulders have been turning in a lot. So it's gonna be challenging for you to activate the muscles that you need to activate to resist the floor because you just don't oftentimes use those muscles a lot in an active way, right? So if I'm sitting at my desk and I'm hunching, I'm passively turning my shoulders in. So I'm passively contracting my pectoral muscles. If however, I'm in downward dog and I'm asked to actively push away from the ground, then I'm trying to actively use my pectoral muscles, which I may not have a lot of experience with because I'm so passively hunching all day, looking over my computer, looking over my phone. The other thing to think about is because a lot of the movements we're making in yoga, especially on the front end of the practice, are motions or poses where we're facing the floor, we're using a lot of the muscles in the front line of the body and not using a lot of the muscles in the back line of the body. 
So muscles that draw the shoulder blades closer together, like the rhomboids, muscles that keep the shoulder blades closer to the back, like the serratus anterior, um, even muscles like the hamstrings uh, and the glute maximus, both hip extensor muscles, don't oftentimes get a lot of use. And when you think about what people are doing most of the time, i.e. sitting, they're then just kind of passively uh, stretching glute max and hamstrings and not act, uh, well, passively stretching, yeah, glute max and hamstrings and um, not using them in an active way. So having said that, um, passive, hang on a second, passively, so you're sitting, your uh, glute max is at, right, passively, <laughs> I'm having a brain hip extension, passively stretching, correct, okay. So, um, so having a, uh, a kind of a format behind your sequence that allows you to uh, balance out some of these kind of built-in imbalances in yoga practice is good. So these are just things to keep in mind, especially because um, this idea, you know, that kind of harkens back to, at least when I started practicing yoga, this idea that yoga is really all you need, right? And I remember you know, many, many years ago, that was really what people were telling me. That was what teachers were telling me. Oh, you just need to practice five, six days a week. It's so healthy for you and all this kind of stuff. And it really was over time that I started to realize that um, I really needed work for the muscles in the back of my body. And a great way for me to get those muscles working was to go to the gym. And so about five, six, seven years ago, I started to really actively get back into going to the gym. And that really helped me create more balance in my body. I sought out work for all of last year with a personal trainer. And I actually did less yoga and tried to spend more time standing up on the back, doing, doing muscular work for the posterior chain rather than so much work for the, the front of the body, um, frontal plane. So that's another idea. So the first thing we talked about is the point of the sequence being to tell a story. The second thing we talked about is to teach the same sequence or not benefits or challenges. And so, you know, just to encapsulate that last one, just keeping in mind as a teacher, different things that you can introduce into your sequences to balance out the practice, which I'll get to in this next point. And then also, encouraging your students to do some different things, right? Rather than being kind of like this yoga teacher that's like, all you need to do is yoga and, you know, we're detoxing here and all those little like buzzword kind of buzz phrase things that people used to say, how about, <laughs> right? How about we actually kind of encourage people to integrate yoga into their lifestyle in a way where they're doing other things for exercise too. Um, and, and rather than using these kind of buzz phrases, like you're going to detox when you come into a hot class, why don't we encourage them to drink water and to, you know, enjoy the warm room without trying to kind of dangle these other phrases that really aren't always super grounded in truth. And they're really just more meant to be a little bit of a marketing slant. So the third thing is, um, what are some techniques that you can bring into your sequencing that will take specific anatomy themes into account. So I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of this and, and that'll kind of bring it to life. So one of the things over the years that I've really changed significantly as much as I can within the studios where I teach, because sometimes I teach in places where they really want me to stick to a particular sequence, which I need to honor. However, if I have a little bit of flexibility, and, and for this first point, I really just need a little bit of leeway. What I like to do is start people on their back. And this relates to what I was just talking about before. So keep in mind that just the lifestyle habits that people are gonna generally have um, is that they're gonna be sitting a lot during the day, they're gonna be hunching over their computers and their phones. Even if they have a job like a bartender or a hairstylist or, uh, uh, someone that works in retail, someone that's standing up a lot, 
chances are, like all of us, they're hunching over their phone for 50, 60% of the day. I mean, all you need to do is look at your usage chart on your iPhone. I get them and they say, you know, three, four hours a day, which completely freaks me out. I'm like, where four hours a day? How is that even possible? Um, so that's obviously another, another topic, but just keeping that in mind, what does that mean? That means that people are generally hunching. So it was always kind of curious to me, or it, it wasn't always curious to me, but as I started to see things through an anatomical lens, it really started to suggest to me that it doesn't really make much sense for me to start people in child's pose because that's where they are posturally most of the time anyway. So I'd much rather start them on their back. In that way, they, it's much easier for them to breathe. It's much easier for them to feel supported. In fact, all you need to do is look around the class when you call out child's pose to begin and you'll see people fidgeting, you'll see them shifting their knees, you'll see people shifting their feet, you'll see people with their head hanging. You know, all this stuff that really says to me that it's not the most comfortable posture to do. And so to that end, one of the things you can do to just flip the script, literally, is start them on their back. And so what does that give you a chance to do? It gives you a chance to introduce them to different pranayama, different breathing techniques, which they can access with much greater ease because they're going to be on the back. It gives them a chance to feel completely supported. It gives every single person in the class to feel completely supported, even students who are brand new. With that feeling of support, it allows them to connect to their body, it allows them to connect to their breath, it allows them to start making that intentional shift from busy to more focused. Additionally, what it does is it gives you a really easy way to start to shift them into some active poses where they can use muscles on the back of the body. So things like bridge with the arms by the sides, bridge with the fingers interlaced underneath, bridge with cactus arms, anything like that. I wouldn't necessarily do core work because that's more front body and a little probably energetic, too energetically active for the beginning of practice. But I definitely, definitely would have them um, do some bridge poses. And you could even speak to their glute max, which is again, a hip extender. They're coming into bridge. They're going to be using their hamstrings and their uh, glute max to extend the hip. And so you could even speak to the glute max a little bit and say, hey, just you know, gently squeeze, you know, underneath you around your sitting bones and you'll, you'll actively contract your, your glute max. So that's one theory and the rationale behind that. Another technique you can use in your sequences is something from exercise science or from the personal training world. I have my personal training certificate. And so I try to bring some of those techniques into my teaching uh, as well. And that's the concept of progressions, right? And you, you might even be doing this and might not even realize that it's a connection to, you know, kind of the personal training world. The idea that you start with something simple and then you add some complexities uh, to progress the student uh, from, you know, something more basic to something more complex, which calls into play different bodily systems in a more significant way. So nervous system, musculoskeletal system, cardiovascular system. So um, a simple example from the gym world is you would have somebody do a standing leg raise on the ground, and then you might add weights, and then you might add some um, unstable base, like, you know, kind of like one of those um, little unstable balls kind of thing that they stand on. So that's one example from the exercise science world where we're using progressions to build all those different systems up. In yoga, there are different ways to do that. And it's a really good way for you as a teacher to begin to give people the cues that they need to use in the harder uh, expression of the shape but give them these cues in the easier expression of the shape and give them a chance to get it, give them a chance to kind of get their feet underneath them. So a good example of this that I like to do is I start them out in a forward fold. I have them put two blocks in front of their feet on the little edge. I have them put their hands on their blocks. I then have them kick their right leg back halfway up, flex the foot, and I make a specific uh, point of 
uh, highlighting that their upper hip needs to be open. So they need to turn their upper toes towards the wall. I then have them put the right leg down, kick the left leg halfway up, and I make special focus of open your hip, which means your upper toes are facing the wall on the left. Then I might do a couple of additional things in the sequence, and then I insert a side plank except in the side plank, I have them put their knee down and then lift the back leg halfway up. And again, I call back to opening the hip, i.e. turning the toes towards the wall on the left or right, depending on what side you're on. So here in this expression, they're in side plank, but they have the modification of the knee down, but they have the leg halfway up and the hip externally rotated, just like they did in the simpler expression when they had both hands on the blocks in the forward fold. And then sometime later in the sequence, I have them do half moon, which again has the hip externally rotated, the toes facing the wall to the left or right, depending on what side you're doing, but adds the additional challenge of being the balance. So here they have one block under their hand, they have their other hand up to the sky, they're adding that rotational focus that they didn't have the first time, but they had in the side plank variation and they definitely have here. And then for the last progression, I insert a uh, half moon from the dynamic movement of having them do sun salutations with warrior two instead of warrior one. And I take them from uh, warrior two to side angle, extended to side angle with the bind. And then I keep that arm half bound and I have them reach for a block with their other hand and jump into half moon from there. So that's a four point progression where I'm building the skills, I'm using the cues, um, and then as it gets harder, I can call back to the same cues so that the student starts to see a pattern, starts to see that there's a relationship between those four shapes that are peppered throughout, you know, maybe 20 minutes of the sequence, and they can start to get a sense of some of those key actions they need to do. I can tell you for sure in all of these uh, examples of this progression. They want their back foot to be flexed. They want their back hip to be externally rotated. I can tell you absolutely, people oftentimes don't have the mobility, don't have the awareness of that back leg, so they won't really get it. And so all those earlier progressions gives you a chance to speak to opening the hip and, and flexing the foot. And that is something you can call back on in all those different expressions of that pose. Another thing you can do is um, breaking down poses into their component parts. And so this can sometimes be helpful for something like wheel, right? Wheel is one of those poses where people really want to get it. They sometimes feel a lot of resistance to getting into it. And what we need them to get a sense of is we need them to be able to get a sense of bending a little bit through the thoracic spine where it's general generally really stiff because the rib cage is there and it's just not a lot of mobility there. And people are very used to moving through their neck and sometimes also used to moving through their lumbar spine, but they're not often very used to moving uh, through the thoracic spine, definitely not in a backbend direction, right? In spinal extension. I mean, if you think about it, there literally is nothing that they're doing throughout the day where they are extending their spine. They're definitely hunching a lot, but they're never reaching their arms up and reaching back. There's no thing they are doing, no activity of daily living. I can't even think of any occupational requirement, i.e. any job someone would have, where they would be constantly asked to reach up to the sky and reach back, thereby bringing their spine into extension. So when you think about that, and then you think about the fact that we're bringing them into a yoga class most of the time at the end of their day or at the beginning of their day, their body's not warmed up and we're asking them after, you know, certainly it's after 40 minutes or so of practice to do a backbend, it's still a big hill to climb. So one of the things that can be helpful is to break up into its component parts what you want them to do. So certainly all the preliminary stuff you're doing, you're doing your up dog, you're doing when you do things on the belly, you're doing your locust, your bow. So all those cues, uh, all those poses, I mean, are helpful to highlight the bending of the spine that's happening there. And you could say bending, right? I mean, I think most people are not gonna get that back bends are spinal extension. So you can just call it what it is, it's bending the spine. 
Uh, of course, flexing the spine is bending it too, but if you want people to, you know, when they come into up dog, you could say bend the spine. So they start to really connect what they're doing in the pose and what the, you know, kind of the anatomical focus is. Then when you get closer, let's say you're doing your back bends on your belly, you get closer to offering wheel, you could do something like camel and have them not throw their head back. So in that way, you could have them really focus on bending through the thoracic spine. Then you could have them come on their back and you could have them do some bridge poses and highlight when they're doing bridge that there really isn't a lot of bend in the thoracic spine. In fact, bridge is really just natural curves of the spine. So quite frankly, although bridge is a great way to create some extensibility in the hip flexors, which you'll need for wheel, it's not a great way to get some mobility in the thoracic spine, which you will need for wheel. So one of the things I've started to do is before I take them from bridge to wheel, I do two bridges and then I have them come up to seated. They're facing the front of the mat. I have them bring one hand back. So let's say the left hand back with the fingertips pointing back. And then I have them take the right arm up to the sky and pull the right arm down. And then with their feet set at hip width, I have them push up and back. So you probably know this as flip dog, except the big difference here is I'm not having them do it from downward dog. I'm not having them go into down dog, lift the leg, bend the upper knee and flip over. Because in my opinion, that's potentially really injurious to the lower shoulder. Instead, what I'm having them do is sit on their seat, put their left hand back, fingertips back, pull the right arm in close to the side, mimicking there that use of the serratus by hugging the elbows in and less of the trapezius by elevating the shoulder blades. And then from there, I'm having them push off and go back, which starts to trigger their glutes and their hamstrings as hip extensor muscles, which I want them to use when they come into wheel and let their head drop back. So here, what they're doing is they don't have both hands on the ground like they will in wheel. So they have that freedom of the one hand being free. They can start to experience what it feels like in their body and their nervous system to have this backbend happening, which can be definitely disorienting for people. And they can use those lower body muscles on the back of the body to create the force to lift up and push back. Then I have them do it on the other side. I might have them do it twice on both sides. Then I bring them to their back and have them try wheel. So it's been a progression in a way, and it's also been breaking things into its component parts where I have an opportunity to speak to the anatomy that I want them to tap into in simpler things. And then when they get to that wheel pose where they need to integrate all of that, they have a much better chance of doing it because they've had all these preliminary steps along the way. Plus they've had me explaining the involved anatomy. And so this gives them a way through that part of the sequence to experience the pose in a different way. Um, so we talked about, let's just kind of recap. We talked about the point of the sequences to tell a story. We talked about the benefits of teaching the same sequence or not from an anatomical standpoint. We talked about techniques and sequencing that take specific anatomy themes into account. We talked about breaking down poses into their component parts. So this, there's two more. So this next one has to do with building a sequence around an anatomical theme. Now I'm going to tell you, if you are not comfortable with anatomy, this is not something I would suggest you do. You really need to have a good understanding of anatomy to create a sequence around an anatomical theme. So some anatomical themes are maybe shoulder opening or hip opening. I mean, I hate to say it, it's, they're kind of tired themes. <laughs> I much rather like to do things like I just described to you rather than go into a class and be like, okay, we're going to do a lot of hip opening today. You know, I mean, to me, that's kind of a same old, same old. I'd rather do something way more interesting. However, I know that for certain, you know, class populations, maybe you're doing a runner's workshop and you're heading into that and you know, hey, these people are probably going to have really tight hip flexors. So I'm going to want to do some other things. Now, keep in mind, hip opening in and of itself doesn't really tell me a lot because the hip is a ball in a socket. So do you mean opening in an external rotation kind of way? Do you mean opening in an extension kind of way? What are we really talking about here? So that's why, again, you need to have a good understanding of anatomy in order to build sequences with an anatomical theme in mind. Um, 
one thing, and I'll just give you a quick example here, kind of piggyback on, piggybacking on what I had said earlier, that idea of doing the same thing over and over again. So when I was talking about that particular concern, and I was talking about the muscles in the front of the body, right? So think about pec minor, pec major, coracobrachialis, um, subscapularis. These are all internal rotators of the shoulder. So let's say, because I know that that's a concern, when you look at the general population, you, you can generally say those muscles tend to be tight in people. So if those muscles tend to be tight, what muscles do you think tend to be weak? Right? So if I'm turning in my shoulders a lot and I'm passively contracting those muscles, what muscles do you think are generally going to be weak? Well, if you said external rotators, you're correct. Right? So if I'm constantly hunching and I'm passively contracting muscles in the front of my body, I'm also at the same time passively lengthening muscles in the back of my body that do the opposite thing. So what you could do for, instead of just saying a shoulder opening theme, which in a way it is, but the way I'm explaining it gives it, gives it much more depth and much more, you know, not even nuance, just much, it's much more grounded in the literal anatomy is recognizing that um, because posturally where people are most of the day, they're not using muscles in the back of the body that rotate the shoulders outward. So those muscles are things like teres minor and infraspinatus, which both are muscles with a rotator cuff and they open, quote unquote, open the shoulders or externally rotate them. So those muscles tend to be weak because of all the hunching that we do. So with that in mind, it would be a great idea to go into a class and to think about things you can offer people that gives them a chance to externally rotate i.e. strengthen those muscles. And hey, other things you could do would be to work other muscles on that back line of the body, like the triceps, right? That would be a good thing. Um, like the um, lower trapezius, which draws the shoulder blades closer together as well, brings the bottom tips of the shoulder blades a little bit closer together, slightly depresses the shoulder blades. And also muscles like the serratus anterior, which we use in plank to, uh, and low plank when we hug the elbows in by the side. So these are all back body muscles. Serratus is a little bit of a lateral muscle because it wraps around the sides, but definitely rhomboids, squeeze the shoulder blades together, uh, lower trapezius, teres minor, infraspinatus as external rotators. That whole slew uh, of muscles would be great, great, great to strengthen to counteract all the hunching people do. So any of your poses, your side angles with the half bind, your triangles with the half bind, um, interlacing fingers behind the back, um, moving from high to low push-up correctly, <laughs> right? Teaching people that even though the palms are down in plank and moving from plank to low plank, you wanna keep a little of external rotation involved. You know, these are all things that are going to start to activate those muscles in the back line, which can be a great way to, yes, open the shoulders, but rather than just kind of using that same old phrase, why don't we add all this other substantive anatomy information to it and help them understand that strengthening those muscles in the back of the body, which open the shoulders, is a great way to create more balance between the muscles in the front and the muscles in the back. Oh, and another thing you could do is archer arms. You could do archer arms in warriors. You could do archer arms in seated cow face pose. You could do archer arms in uh, straddle leg fold. So the proserita uh, posture. So there's lots of ways you can integrate shoulder shapes into other more standard postures. So that's a way to, you know, kind of approach building from an anatomical theme, building a sequence from that. And then I want to just end with this last thing. Um, someone wrote me a question the other day. When you do a pose in one direction, is it critical that you do the counter pose? And this is, again, one of those things that I think has been out there in the yoga world for many, 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 many years. And it's in kind of the yoga teacher vernacular, um, which is, okay, so now that we did a forward fold, let's do the counter pose. So let's say I do seated forward fold, Paschimottanasana. Now I wanna do Matsyasana fish. So here's the thing. I don't necessarily, you know, I, I've not really seen anything to indicate 
outside the yoga world and the exercise science training I've done that you absolutely have to do the opposite thing after you do the opposite thing, right? So when you do a forward fold, is it absolutely critical to the body that you then do something to open the front line of the body? And I think one of the things that holding on to that mindset or that philosophy does is it makes us think as yoga teachers about anatomy as an absolute kind of thing where there are these hard and fast rules that need to be applied in order for people to be quote unquote healthy and balanced and all of that. And that's just not true. Um, every person that comes to your class is going to have a different compositional makeup in their body. So we know that to be true. So it's really hard when you acknowledge that to then say, okay, so if that's something that I acknowledge for every single person that comes to my class and does a forward fold, they're going to now need to do some kind of back bend. It just doesn't line up. Additionally, you need to think about when you're doing things in a one-off type scenario, that's way different than when you're doing things over and over and over and over and over again, right? So certainly if I'm doing the same movement over and over and over again, it might make sense to do things in the opposite direction. But in the context of one yoga class, one experience, it's not necessarily going to have you know, a bad or detrimental effect. This does call back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is the idea of doing the same thing over and over again, which is again, another reason why it can be helpful to vary your sequences a little bit and to encourage your students to do other things. But of course, in the context of when they come to your classes, maybe you do switch it up a little bit. And the, the driver for that is not that you're quote, trying to keep it interesting, but more that you acknowledge the anatomical impact of doing the same thing over and over again. And it's grounded in an understanding of how muscles work together, how muscles work in pairs, and how, like in the example I gave you, those frontline muscles, pec minor, pec major, are agonists, which is the muscle doing the action of hunching. And in that scenario, the paired muscle or the antagonist is the rhomboids, which draw the shoulder blades closer together. So the more you have an understanding of that agonist antagonistic pair, another example would be psoas flexes the hip, its antagonist is the glute max and the hamstrings that extend the hip. The more you understand those pairs and how muscles work in pairs, that can inform how you create sequences to leave people overall feeling more balanced rather than kind of throwing out this kind of, I don't even know, point pose, counter pose idea when it's not really grounded in any understanding of anatomy. It's just kind of something that you say because you heard it and people say it and it's been said on and on and on for as long as I've been practicing. So this is, you know, again, a large part of what I'm trying to do, which is maybe rattle a little bit of these um, long held beliefs that this is the way it has to be. This is the way it has to be said. These are things we say as yoga teachers. And instead, you know, think about how we can communicate things in a way to our students that number one is highly understandable, right? Number two, doesn't require any specialized knowledge for them to get it. They don't need to be practicing like a really long time to understand this pose counter pose thing. We're just explaining things in a highly understandable way. And it's grounded in a knowledge of anatomy rather than just kind of saying things in a yoga speak sort of way and hoping that whoever we pick that up from is correct. So to leave you kind of with a way to pull this all together, you know, because I know for some of you, you may say, well, that sounds great, but what if I don't have that knowledge of anatomy yet? I certainly don't want to be going out and saying things that are going to potentially hurt my students or saying things when I really don't know if it's correct. So I just did a Facebook Live on this today. So you'll probably be listening to this episode on today is February 11th, probably around the 13th. So you can go back and look at my Facebook page, the Bare Bones Yoga Anatomy Work Group, and you can view this video. One of the things I said in it is, um, you can definitely teach from action, you can definitely teach from alignment, and you can definitely teach from what is the point of this pose, right? So that's a great template that you can use as you're building your anatomy knowledge. Um, that kind of cueing template, action, alignment, anatomy, feeling, those cues I describe in detail and how to give them in my cues webinar. So I'll include the link to that in the show notes. 
uh, which is on my website if you access this podcast episode via my website. You can also just DM me on Instagram or send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com, and I will be glad to send you the link to that webinar. So a couple things before we wrap up. Uh, there is a sequence building template on my homepage. This will guide you through creating sequences. You could create a whole library of sequences just by filling this form out every time you have a new sequence idea. Again, I do not encourage you to be changing your sequences all the time. However, I recognize, of course, you're going to have some different sequences. So wouldn't it be nice if they were kind of in a similar format instead of your scribble notepad or whatever you're using on your computer? So go to my homepage, barebonesyoga.com. Right on the homepage, you'll see the sequence building template. You can download that. It's a free download. And then you can use that going forward to support you as you, build, as you build your sequences and to give you a way to develop kind of a repertoire, kind of a library of sequences. I don't want you to forget about my Costa Rica retreat that I mentioned at the beginning. If you're on the fence or thinking about it or unsure, please send me an email or a direct message on Instagram. Share with me what your thoughts are and I'll give you some additional feedback to answer your questions. This is really, I don't want you to miss this. So if you're on the fence, at least you owe it to yourself to ask me some questions and let, let's talk about it a little bit more. The last thing I want to say is I just closed my mentorship program until June and my uh, anatomy learning program. You may have heard me talking about that in some of the prior episodes. If you want to be on the wait list for when admission opens again, uh, when I'm taking uh, applications for the mentorship program, which I'll be doing in May, and or you want to be on the list to be notified first when I reopen enrollment for my anatomy learning program called the Blueprint Program, there are two wait lists for those. So just, again, send me a DM and say, hey, I want to be on the wait list for the anatomy learning program or, hey, I want to be on the wait list for the mentorship program. These are things that will allow you to be notified first when I open enrollment and when I open admission process for the mentorship program. So I want to thank you so, so much for watching, um, uh, for watching, for listening. And if you have any comments or questions, please post them on social media, post uh, maybe a, a review in iTunes. I would love that. And um, otherwise send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. So enjoy the rest of your day, wherever you are. And I can't wait to talk to you again on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste.